welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. I'm Harvey Asher, sexaholic. I've been sexually sober for 36 years and eight months, one day at a time. Uh, let's open this meeting with some inhales and exhales. And then a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer. God, grant me uh-huh. serenity. You have seven things I cannot change. Others to change. Wisdom to know the difference. As most of you know, having many of your faces I've seen over the past few weeks. Uh, this is a kind of unique type of meeting. I read the exact words from articles I wrote over the years for the essay. After I finished reading, we leave it open for questions and answers. Uh, if at within the hour we close, but if there are still people who want to ask some questions, they could remain on for a while, and I'll do my best. Um, this week is the fundamental the fundamental for relapse prevention. The subjects called a program based on joy and love. As we go on in the readings, you'll see that without joy, what's the use of staying sober? And people tend to sober up but not get that joy and tend to go back to their default to handle the discomfort. So I'm going to start reading now from the essay article that, uh, let me tell you, Daniel has been doing a Herculean job. I can't even imagine it. He has put in all these articles. Both? 
in one category in on the net on our essay site rather than having them scattered over almost 20 20 years so uh, thank you again daniel for all your hard work for our fellowship and thank you again malcolm for getting me to do this <laughs> What's not accurate are the years of my sobriety, and because this was written in um, 2012. I've been sexually sober now for 28 years. When I first came into SA, the fear of relapsing and of subsequent pain and relapse that it caused help me to maintain my sobriety, fear of getting another venereal disease, fear of being arrested, fear of losing my wife and family, and fear of getting further into final financial difficulties all seem paramount to me. But today, I know that fear and pain are not enough to keep me sober. Over the years, I have watched many people come into SA full of fear and pain, convinced they would never act out again. And yet they did. I saw that fear of acting out and pain from consequences of acting out were not enough to keep them sober. Thus, I realized early in my sobriety that fear and pain would not be enough to protect me from my addiction. My sponsor would often say that God gave us all a gift. The gift was to forget pain. He would say that if we did not have this gift of forgetting pain, women would never have more than one child. But forgetting is also a part of my disease. As I recover, my disease tells me I don't have a disease anymore. It tells me that it was not so bad. What could it hurt to loosen up a bit on my program? But I know that this type of thinking will lead to a downward spiral and to an abyss of chaos. So if I do not have fear of pain, then what remains to keep me sober? I began to realize that in place of fear, my program had to be based on the joy and love of living. Although I can never forget where my sexual addiction took me and the pain of the consequences of acting out, I need to have a program of positive sobriety also. The words, don't do this, don't do that, no, 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 were never enough to continue my journey into progressive victory over lust. The White Book makes this point strongly it says, I was not cheating on my wife. 
I was not having sex with myself. I was not looking for the pictures of going to those places. Not, not, not. For months and months, I was not. Until one day, not was not enough. And I went back at it. The essay book, page 145. Love and joy are emphasized in the AA literature as well. The joy of living is the theme of the AA's 12th step, and action is its key word. Here we turn outward toward our fellow alcoholics who are still in distress. Here we experience the kind of giving that asks no rewards. Here we begin to practice <coughs> all 12 steps of the program in our daily lives so that we and those about us may find emotional sobriety. When the 12th step is seen in its full implication, it is really talking about the kind of love that has no price tag on it. The 12 and 12, page 106. We are also told in the AA book, we are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. We cannot subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears, though it once was just that for many of us. <coughs> but it is clear that we made our own misery. God didn't do it. Avoid then the deliberate manufacture of misery. But if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize on it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. Page 133 of the AA book. <clears throat> when I first came into essay, I had absolutely no idea what any of this meant. I had to be taught by my sponsors and others who had gone before me in the program, what love and joy were all about and what positive sobriety meant. Following are a few of the principles I have learned. Number one, connect with God first thing in the morning. I tell him throughout the day how much I love him. I now accept his unconditional love for me and steadfastly work on having unconditional love for God. Number two, cultivate enjoyable activities. I will never forget when Jess, my sponsor, asked me what my hobbies were. What is he talking about, I thought. I'm a busy man. How can I have time for hobbies? He quickly set me straight. With his support, I developed many fun hobbies and now create multimedia videos for family events. I do family tree research. I garden. I write articles for the essay at times. I'm a movie buff. These are just a few examples. Three, make gratitude lists throughout the day. I begin my day writing a gratitude list of 20 items. Throughout the day, I continue. 
my conversation with God by thanking him for all the wonderful things in my life. My sponsor would say that God is very busy and does not need to have complicated prayers. He would say that God loves short prayers. And the short prayer God loves most is thank you. I joyfully thank you for all the gifts he has given me, especially the gift of sobriety. Number four, have fun. As we read in the big book, but we aren't a glum lot. If newcomers could not see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want, want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. So we think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. Outs I am of Colombia. Outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic experience out of the past. But why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. AA book, page 132. One day when I was very upset, I called my sponsor. Instead of his... In Spanish, no. Please. Instead of trying to solve my problem or soothe my in injured pride, he asked me a ridiculous question, at least in my opinion. He said, Harvey, what do you do when you go to a circus and see crazy antics? The clowns perform. I begrudgingly said I laugh. He then said that is exactly why I needed to learn to do about the crazy antics I do each day. I needed to learn to laugh at myself. He suggested I buy a toy clown and place it where I could see it each day. The clown was to remind me not to take myself so seriously. I have used that clown now for 27 years. I emphasize laughing a lot at our essay meetings. I often said prior to officially starting our meeting, we seem so quiet. You know, we are not at a funeral. We really are not at a funeral at these meetings. In actuality, we are at a festive occasion where we can celebrate our newfound freedom. Number five. Bring the joy of recovery to others. This is the, it's, this itself becomes fun. Service work is such a good way for me to get out of myself. When I am not preoccupied with self, I automatically feel more joyous and loving. I could go on and on about how much fun life has become in sobriety. As my sponsor told me, it only gets better. Yes, the outside can turn into a mess, but inside us, it only gets better. I used to be so serious about everything. Now I actually make jokes and playfully tease my wife. Her response is, wait a minute, 
I'm the only one in the family who can make jokes around here. Then I say to her, not anymore. As we read in Recovery Continues, page 40, this is a very, this is very new for me today, but I like the feeling. Acceptance, gratitude, and joy are better than fear. And I'd rather have this than the mood-altering pills I took before sobriety. Real joy and without a hangover. I'm not naturally a very joyful person, but now I have a way I can actually bring joy into my life through every temptation and trial. Whenever I count it all joy, I have joy. What a gift. Join us in the... Join us in the love and joy the program can bring to us all. Jump on the wagon of positive sobriety. Experience the joy of living a sober life. It works for me. I know it can work for you. Hi, um, Israel Rosenstein, grateful recon, sexolic, and good person. Harvey, I just wanted to uh, thank you for all that you say, uh, said, especially what you said to me today, but I, I want to ask, how it go, are you going to the, to the meetings in SA? And I, I don't know, I'm feeling it's like, you know, people afraid not to be serious for a second sometimes, but, you know, I mean, sober people. And can you tell us how it was in the beginning, how it was uh, in Nashville, Oh, it looks like. I mean, the la laughter in the meetings and all this joy and all this. Please, if you the can. First if you year, the first year in Nashville, only one out of 102 people stayed. I would keep track of who came. And, only, and we had a lot of the meetings at my office. And we had 102 people show up. End of the year, only two of us were left. New people came in. So apparently people did not want what we had. What did we have back then? We'd have arguments, we'd scream at each other. We had one woman in the fellowship in those early years, you couldn't sit except straight up with your legs together. If a man opened his legs while sitting, she'd yell at him and say, close your legs. <laughs> it, made, it, it was tough. <laughs> It's like a Hasidic group, you know. <laughs> and um, we were so frightened of Roy, you know, what was he thinking, what would happen. Uh, in the first year, uh, it, first edition of the essay book, like the, the book came out a year after I got sober, but the first edition implied that if you had a wet dream, you lost sobriety. 
and everyone was terrified they were going to have wet dreams, and most of us did have wet dreams. <laughs> and we go around all upset, and uh, then Jess came along, and he said, <laughs> wet dreams are a sign of recovery. <laughs> Because until we got sober, we never had wet dreams, basically. We were too busy masturbating. And, um, and so there was all this tension. And luckily, we had those two conferences a year. My first conference, maybe there were international conferences. Maybe there were 50 of us. And we all became attached. Really attached. And um, you, then Jess came. Well, he was there to begin with, but with this much lighter approach. Roy was very honest in, in Recovery Continues. When he talked about, he was a very serious person. He, he developed something from nothing. It was his true child, you know, a real child that he, he really wanted to protect. And so there were all these dynamics. But luckily, I came into SA through AA. I had seven months of AA sobriety. And an AA man, don't, <laughs> the laughter is unbelievable. We talked some about it last week. Unbelievable how much we laugh at ourselves as we were doing antics of a clown. So this is a process. Uh, as many of you know, when I do come to your countries or to your cities and talk, sometimes the first thing I say is, man, cut this out. This ain't a funeral hall. Come on. And um, sometimes I have to say some very inappropriate stuff to get the laughter going. And it. It's it. How can I not have joy? I should have been dead from AIDS. I came in in 1984. I had sex with about 500 people. And I'm an equal opportunity employer. Doesn't matter if they're women or men. So how can I not be joyous? By the way, I've had, I was sober about 10 years, maybe, had triple bypass of surgery a few weeks before our international conference in Nashville. And they all but had to carry me up there, but man, I was sharing. And I've gone blind in recovery on one eye. I've had 15 operations probably or close to it. 
six, seven, eight, nine, yeah, about ten at least. I've had problems with children. I've had problems with grandchildren. Problems will never go away. That's called utopia. It's how do we see the problems and how do we respond to the problems? Okay. Next question. Well, just to add on to that, Harvey, so what, what would you suggest to people that are coming into meetings and they are they feel like they're in a funeral parlor? Um, and I've been in a few of those meetings. Very grateful my local meetings are not like that. Um, obviously, there's no leaders in SA, but what, what what can an individual do to try and, I mean, do they have to make lewd, not lewd, but <laughs> funny jokes to, 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 to change that whole atmosphere, you know, other than staying sober? How about one that's real difficult? Before you go into the room to say, God, let me be joyous. And God... You take care of this meeting. This, I'll screw it up. The biggest gift I gave to, Israel, to, to Nashville was after 10 years, I stopped going to any intergroup meetings. I just let it go and not have to control meetings. Because part of addiction is control. And worse comes to worse because our concept is unity. That first step, unity, uh, first tradition, unity. If all you can do is mention cheering it up, but if it doesn't, that's a group conscience. And so you start another meeting based on laughter, just so you don't start it at the exact same time as the one you're not happy with. I stay not alone in these meetings. I tried already. Then it's not time. You do the best you do. And then you just go from there. I started a few meetings, other people. We had a man, he's still in our program. He came in as a kid and uh, he now has a son who's adult. But um, we were having two meetings a week and this young guy came in, Judson, and said, it's not enough for me. So he was just barely sober, I guess, at the time. He started a third meeting, and then a fourth meeting, then a fifth <laughs> He wanted one every day. He needed one every day. He started one. People have such difficulty with the concept of something not being an organization or a religion. It's so hard for people to think out of the box in recovery. We are not an organization or a religion. We are a fellowship. 
of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope. So if you don't compete with the meeting and just start another meeting that's based on reading about joy, opening it up, or whatever you want to do, you shift the emphasis. You shift the emphasis in a new meeting. You know, at AA, they just say, all you need is one argument and a coffee pot and two drunks, and you start a new meeting. Now, this brings us to a very important piece about joy. There are two concepts in the world. One is based on scarcity, and one is based on abundance. Scarcity means we have only one pie and we have to divide it up equally. Abundance thinking means we only have a pie, but we'll bake two or three more pies. So we don't have to necessarily exactly give it out equally. We could have a whole pie for ourselves if we want. Just have to bake another pie. Now, this concept of abundance and scarcity is at the core of joy. Because when you switch into the concept of abundance, you look at the stars at night and you realize there is no end. And you try to count the grains of Sand, there you can't. And when you look at the universe and at all the different faces, unless you're a twin, everyone basically has a different face. It's inconceivable. That's abundance. And what happens is people get married to these ideas. We're being disloyal. We're being this. We're being that. Well, I'm going to tell you a story. I might have told it to you before in this session, but I don't, I don't quite remember. We, I was sober a year. I mean, it meant a lot to me. And there was, maybe it was a year and a half, and there was a guy who got sober for was really sober. And one day he called, he said, I'm starting another fellowship, SAA. I felt like he stabbed me in the back. We're going to be competing. There's not enough people even in SA, and now they're going to go to SAA, and what's going to happen to me, and all those thoughts, and I got jealous and angry and envious, and and nothing I did stopped it. None of the steps were working for me until I called him up and I said, for the first few weeks, I will come and help you start your fellowship. I will help you. I will help you anchor it 
until you get enough people where you don't need me to come. And I was free. Six months later, one of our other guys announced they were going to do SOAA. <laughs> Same reaction. This time, I grabbed it faster. I want to make a long story short. We have 49 meetings at least in Nashville a week. And I don't think there's two or three meetings of SA a week. I'd have to double, of SAA a week in our city. What was supposed to be was going to be. To, to hook to abundance rather than being so frightened that they're going to take away from me. Nope. Now what's that basis into? My greed. I could never get enough sex. If I were doing something, I was thinking, gee, something's happening out there I'm missing. Okay? That I was into scarcity. Man, I better do it because I'll miss it. When you're in abundance, you don't have to keep thinking you're missing something. Yes, you already have it. We have all we need today at this moment. At this very moment, we need nothing. In a few hours, we'll want to eat, we'll want to do something. But at this moment, we have everything we need, including our breath. Next question. Thank you. Ephraim, go ahead. There we go. Hi, thanks a lot. Thanks, Harvey. Really appreciate this. Just along the lines of the meetings I and um, being joyous, I find that um, the meetings are so structured, there's very little opportunity for camaraderie, for interchange, communication. You know, everyone make you're not allowed to do crosstalk. You know, where where in there are you supposed to, you know, joke and kid around and get light? It's uh, it seems like uh, it's I find it while many things I love about it, but a little sterile. Any hey. comments? Yeah, well, if you notice what's happened, all the questions are turning to meetings, it's much easier to focus on meetings than on you. You get the joy, you'll bring it to the meeting. Don't expect to get the joy from the meeting. A meeting is composed of joyous people. You want to make the joy. When you maybe might not be experiencing it yourself. By being in your head, by being in fear. So don't worry about the meetings. If they're joyous, if they're not, if they're keeping you sober, and that's what counts. Am I staying sober? If not, then you examine it. 
And you say, what am I missing? The joy of living is our thing. Uh, one of my sponsees today asked me about happiness. And I shared with them, you can't make yourself be happy. Happiness is the absence of unhappiness. So if you go to a meeting already worked up that it's not the way you like it, you're not going to feel joy in the meeting, even if it's present. So when we work on ourselves to say, how am I going to get more joy in my life? Now, I couldn't say it in the book easily or I forgot to write it, I don't know. But how can I know about joy when every feeling I had, I took care of with masturbation or with affairs or with having sex with my wife? I never had to develop feelings. Everything was being compared to an orgasm. Never had to develop the experience of joyousness rather than euphoria. <laughs> and Roy says it beautifully. We're love cripples. First addicts, then love cripples. So this is a tough, tough game to play. It's not easy for people who can't easily, including me, recognize love and joy. This where our brain is comparing it to our shooting up with our sexual drugs. I had two experiences that were life-changing for me. The sponsor I always talk about, he taught me more in four or five years back in the 80s. He died in 89. I can't tell you how much I got from him. But I, wonderful things. But I also got something that when he died, he was dying. All the program vanished. He got very frightened. And then about seven, eight years ago, I had another sponsor for about 10 years. He had 57 years of recovery in AA. And he was 87 and he was dying. And one day, <laughs> He was going to die in a few days. And one day I call him up. He lived in the other side of the United States, mid-America. Mid and um, I said, Don, I'm flying out to be with you. And he starts laughing. He says, Harvey, don't waste your money. <laughs> don't waste your money, Harvey. 
I'm going to be dead in a few days anyway. <laughs> and you know what? If you want what I have, I wanted Cherry, my first sponsor's program, but not his illness and dying. And I wanted my, my sponsor who said, don't waste your money <laughs> for the way, hopefully, one day at a time, I, I'm handling being in my 80s. Joy versus not joy. Okay, people, bring it on. <laughs> so the, ne the next question came in on the messenger. It says, does fear have a place in sobriety? If so, how does that look for you? I become fearful when I hear of people losing sobriety after many years, and I wonder when my turn is. Any experience with this would be appreciated. beautiful question why I'm silent is I'm thinking how how I deal with fear uh, fear is my enemy and yet it permeates me permeates me I have PTSD I have other issues if it's pitch black out, I think some, I'm in my car, I think some monster is going to put their hand on my shoulder. If it's too dark, I think something's behind me, going to get me. I'm loaded with fears. But fear won't keep me sober. Because we forget the fear and the pain. The minute the fantasies begin, if you let that first picture turn into a fantasy, the minute it turns into the first drink, the endorphins start up. And you don't have fear. So I still have to be frightened of that second look. But fear will not keep me sober. So when my fear now is saying, Harvey, you're powerless. You're powerless. If you take that second look, you know what's going to happen. So it's changed forms a lot. My type of fear has changed forms into much more of a first step awareness that I have a, a chronic disease that I'll die with. It, it, it doesn't go away when you get older. I still have the disease. How do I know it shows up in my dreams? It shows up, and I shared with someone today. The, or yesterday, I think yesterday, 
that I have two filters in my brain. Anything you say to me almost and anything I notice gets filtered, filtered sexually. So if I see an orchid plant, I will automatically think of private parts. Okay, first filter. But now I have a filter under that filter automatically. So the first thought turns sexual, but then it immediately goes through this second filter that weaves it out into my 12-step recovery program. It's really simple. It's so simple, it's only taking me over 36 years to do it. <laughs> I'm not cured yet. But boy, I'm not actively lusting today. But my disease is still alive and well inside me. I know it. Just like my alcoholism. I haven't had a drink of alcohol in 37 years, but sometimes it looks good. When I see people having these beautiful drinks at these beautiful places, I get it. I haven't had a cigarette in about 60 years. And every now and then someone smokes the cigarette I smell it, I see how they're holding it, and I get that old feeling back. Addiction is an addiction. It's incurable once you get it. As I said a few weeks ago, once a cucumber becomes a pickle, it can never go back to being a cucumber again, no matter how you fool yourself. Now, I'm in a retirement center here. We have our own apartment, but we eat with other people. People are noticing. Nancy and I are just bringing so much laughter here. And we sit with people who are alone sometimes, and we're kidding, and we're laughing. And I can take this program anywhere I go. Okay, next question. Mitch. Hey, everybody. Perfect, thank you. Um, I actually had two questions, but I don't know that there's enough time for me to waste everybody's time. Um, so, uh, talking about joy, um, you know, you and I have talked a lot about uh, getting um, hobbies and things like that. Um, and I sort of, you know, I think one of my emotional handicaps is, uh, as you've talked a little bit about today, and I think people have talked about in the, the chat, uh, I don't experience joy. And even when I do things that I think in my head will be enjoyable, while I'm doing that, I don't really experience the joy. And it's funny because afterwards, a day later, I look back and I'm like, oh, that was a pretty okay day. But while it's happening, there's just this kind of uh, dullness, this sort of, uh, you know, 
almost a lack of feeling. Not a discomfort anymore, which is good, because I can get through the day without having to go act out. But um, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. I mean, for me, what works is just surrendering it, accepting that that's just my emotional handicap. And, and it's getting better. Um, I think every once in a while I can see glimpses of joy in the day. Um, as you know, I've been, uh, quote-unquote, successful in another program which has helped me feel better physically and, and uh, sort of just be able to experience more. Uh, but I don't know if you have any thoughts or, or anything you can share about that kind of that emotional, specific emotional handicap, just kind of not being able to experience the feeling in the moment. And then kind of like looking back at it, like I'm reading a book about how somebody else had a nice day yesterday. Uh, let's go back to the basics. One of the basics are books. And let's go to Recovery Continues. There's a whole chapter on this in Roy's book, Recovery Continues. It's called The Joy Response. You want to know joy every time you transcend the temptation, you are having a joy experience. You might not know it. You might not be recognizing it. Roy does not say that transcend, you transcend not having a temptation. He says you transcend the temptation, meaning the temptation comes in. What do we do with it? It's at that very second when you let it go, you get the joy. Now, I had to learn when I had anxiety I had to learn when I'm feeling love. I've had to learn what joy might be. I've been numbed out for most of my life through acting out. So I learned, I, I learned a lot from my wife because her life is not as complicated she doesn't take everything so seriously like I do. I, I've been having chronic pain and they are giving me a seizure medicine that helps chronic pain. And today I start obsessing, maybe it's not good for my recovery, taking the pill, maybe that. And my wife said, Okay, Harvey, go ahead and start obsessing over something new now. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm used to obsessing. I'm not used to joy. And I've had to learn it. Every now and then, not everyone could do this because it's on the Internet. Remember, I came in before the Internet, so it's not a problem for me today. But... I sometimes put on, for those who don't know it, the Johnny Carson show from the 70s and watch the comedians. 
and just start belly laughing. It's okay to laugh. And if you're not laughing, you're going to have to go back to what I had to deal with. I grew up in a home where my mother kept yelling at us, if you laugh in the morning, you will cry at night. Over and over, I was programmed. And then they would make it into something religious. Like it's, it's not good for God to hear you cry and laughing in the morning. He'll get you. Well, what it turned out as I grew older and in recovery, I realized my mother would go to bed very late at night. She'd want to sleep late in the morning. She didn't want a lot of noise of kids left. <laughs> okay, next question. We have a question here. He says, I just finished doing six and seven before the meeting with my sponsor. I fear the idea of being joyful. Is it identifiable to fear a fear of joy, to feel a fear of joy? Um, and the question underneath it is, how do you put the past to rest and move into a new experience? You know, they say a lot of this passes if you don't go into the past with anger and keep revisiting it with anger. Um, These are questions that I don't feel comfortable answering because the steps are just not one step. So after you do the sixth and seventh step, the real job comes up of your eighth and ninth step. Having done your steps, you get a spiritual awakening. Now, sometimes you're not aware of the awakening. People around you are more aware of it than you are. So my sponsor would always say, Harvey, never compare yourself with anyone else in the program. Only compare yourself with where you were last month or last year, 10 years ago. Hey, Jim, good to see you from Nashville. So one day at a time, don't rush this. It's a process. And sometimes it's the joy is in surrendering to the process and saying, man, it's in the crucible of my experience. It never ends, especially the 10th step. I was telling a sponsee this afternoon that I needed to make an amend this morning. Where I live, it, the, the rent includes three meals a day. And they made stuffed cabbage yesterday and it got burnt and 
I went to the boss of the place and complained that the quality is going down. And the cook was there when I was explaining it. And I did it. And then I left and I didn't feel right. And then it started the court case, how I was right to do it to go to the head guy before I went to the cook. Because he wasn't listening anyway. I justified it. I thought I kept getting uncomfortable. And then about five o'clock in the afternoon, a few hours later, I said, Harvey, whether you were right or wrong doesn't matter. You needed to first go to the cook before you went to his boss, even though he was there. And I said, you got to make an amend. And I said, shoot, I don't want to make an amend to the cook. He'll get a bad thought for me, won't give me good food. It's going to be, you don't want to do it hard. First thing in the morning, I went to the kitchen asked them to send them out, and I made the amend. I said I was wrong and asked your forgiveness by not coming to you first and going to your boss with you at the same time, and I was wrong, and I was free. And if that feeling isn't joy, nothing is. That joy you get when you... You're having that jury case in your mind, proving how right you are and the other person's wrong. That's another aspect of joy. Next, uh, let's close with a serenity prayer and I will leave the meeting open to continue some questions. Um, let's take in some deep breaths. And by the way, everyone, this is very gratifying that you all Keep coming back. I can't believe it, but I, I so respect you helping me stay sober this way and letting me connect and see all these old friends I have from all the, over the world. So thank you. Uh, next week, our topic is... Um, who has the schedule? Is it healing through bringing the message? Well, right you'll, now. See it. you'll see it in the next. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Healing through bringing the message. Okay. Healing through bringing the message. So I, you'll hear a lot of different stories, hopefully. And um, I'll read the article. By the way, it's exciting for me because... I reread the article the day before. <laughs> like I've said to you before, I said, who wrote this article? This is news to me. I'm glad I'm reading it. <laughs> I forget all this stuff. <laughs> I talk good, but I forget it. And I have to be reminded for my own article. <laughs> it's a wonderful life, let me tell you. Let's breathe. 
Serenity Prayer. God. Thank you. Thank you, Harvey. We're going to continue with a few more questions. Feel free to stay on whoever wants to. Go ahead, Sona. Thank you. Hi, Harvey. Hi, everybody. I hope it is related to joy. Uh, what is your definition of love? What is the thing that we are crippled to experience? Thank you. I have no idea, son. I'm just another bozo on the bus trying to experience some of this. Um, I tell a story of sometimes um, I'll think of that God forbid my wife will die and the next thought is who would I marry? Would I get married? Uh, then I would within moments I could tell once to go to will I sleep with that person or not? I mean, how it goes. <laughs> would it be a man or a woman? Would it be old or young? I mean, it, it happens within millis, milliseconds. Over the years, I've learned whenever that happens, it's because I'm frightened she'll die because I love her. And I've learned the moment that comes to my mind, I pick up the phone and I'll call my wife and say, honey, just want to tell you I love you. I've had to learn over the years to recognize love. I'm a love cripple. It just is. I have this, this metal wall in my chest that blocks in feelings coming in. But I'm getting more aware of it. And breath does wonders. Breath does wonders. Just to circumvent my brain. Sought through prayer and meditation. Breath is so important for us. And you'll get to that more and more in your 11th step. Next question. Um, so we have a question about cross addiction. Um, what can be done to avoid cross addiction? Okay. Can we keep this kind of towards joy? But I, I agree. The question. Yeah. I, <laughs> once I identify an addiction, I need a separate 12 step program. 
Now, some of mine aren't all addictions, like my eating issue problems isn't an addiction. It's that I will abuse it at times, but it's not a major issue. But my sexaholism, my alcoholism are. Um, so you'll, you just have to get honest with yourself about it. If it is a real addiction, you're not going to be able to stop it on your own. You're going to need a 12-step program. Or whatever other program you want to use. We don't have a monopoly on treating addictions. Next question, please. Does anyone have a question they'd like to ask on Joy? Right now, we have no hands up. Uh, I, I have a question. You, you, you said that, that everything comes to your mind, comes sexually. And I just everything, I mean, all, even even the elections in the U.S. I just I'm trying to <laughs> just kidding, <laughs> trying to understand how it's come sexual. Well, since I'm an addict, I exaggerate and lie, so maybe it's not <laughs> but it's pretty close. And it's a, a problem for me because my wife will say something innocent and I'll make something sexual out of it. Or someone else will say something innocently and it crosses my mind sexually. Um, a lot of women here, they're in their late 80s, 90s, they'll touch me. I have a personal trainer. He gets too close to me. The first thought is, these people want sex. So, yeah, I'm not a everything, but enough to make me know it's a still there. The important part for me is to, to remember the danger is not when I remember I'm sick. The danger is thinking I'm well. The joy comes from realizing I'm still sick. The danger that comes from thinking I'm cured is I have all these years. Just like diabetes. No matter how good it is, and you take your meds and your blood pressure, high blood pressure, and it looks totally normal, but stop taking your medication, and it's going to go skyrocket again. It's just a disease. If anyone's here for a morality cleanup, go back to your religion. This program isn't for a morality cleanup. This program is disease modeled. That's why it starts with the doctor's opinion. And the joy of knowing I am not bad getting good, but sick getting well is unbelievable joy.
But most people in the fellowship miss it. They're still doing the religious model. I'm bad getting good. God's going to punish me. I'm going to go to hell. I won't go to heaven. All that stuff that never got you sober to begin with because it's a disease. Most of us had it before we even knew what sex was. Now you're going to say to yourself, how can Harvey say this same crap over and over again? He's like a a recording. Because it's an impossible message that people don't get. No matter how much I say it. And hopefully when I die, I'll still be saying it. And hopefully there'll be people after me who'll keep reminding people of this. And it's not sacrilegious. You would never say that someone who has diabetes and the, they didn't know it and their sugar got so high and they got in a car accident and they injured someone. You'd say, oh, that poor guy who got injured. But man, that woman, oh, it's a shame she didn't know she had diabetes. And what a, oh, it's so bad. You wouldn't say she was evil. She had a negative consequence from a disease. And I've got to tell you this story again. It so impressed me. I worked at a somewhere where a man was so polite, so clean-mouthed, so nice, um, never flirted with the women, just was so polite and nice. But he had diabetes since he was a teenager. And whenever he got hypoglycemic, his insulin got his sugar too low, he would start flirting with the women and saying raunchy stuff to them on the, where I worked. And everyone automatically knew, go get him some orange juice, go get him some orange juice. <laughs> and he'd get it. And when he woke up and we'd tell him what he did, he'd be in hysterics laughing. He knew it wasn't him. He knew it was his illness. And what do we do when we're fast asleep and the next morning our wives say, oh, you were talking in your sleep, you were saying this, you were saying fun stuff. You start laughing because you don't even know it. You don't go into shame. But this is a tough message and this is the message that interferes with the natural joy that we already have if we're not careful it it blocks it i'm bad getting good one more or two more questions and then we'll end uh go ahead yochi um yochi saxaharik from south africa um, thank you very much, Harvey. Very much appreciate these and really um, gaining tremendously from them. 
Um, so my question is on emotional sobriety. Um, I, I have read Bull W's letter, The Next Frontier, on, on emotional sobriety, and it seems like it can be quite a, quite a common thing amongst recovery that people can have depressive episodes. And it seems like his solution was in terms of what he writes um, uh, in the next frontier in his, in his letter over there, where, where he seems to speak about dependencies um, and um, whatever else he speaks about over there. Um, so um, uh, yeah, demands. So I'm just wondering where that fits into all of that, if you, um, if you have any experience um, in terms of emotional sobriety or um, if this is emotional sobriety, what you are speaking about, happiness in general, um, or like if that's like a, like a next level. Um, thank you. I wouldn't be honest with you if I didn't tell you that I felt Bill was a very tragic victim of bipolar disorder. That poor man was in a depression for years. He could hardly write at times, and then at other times, there was no stopping him from writing books and going all over the place. And, and we're allowed to say this because it's not a religion. <laughs> we're just other drunks. Other drunks. And that Everything he says, I think, is very true if you don't have a chemical imbalance. If you have a true chemical imbalance that includes not producing enough serotonin in your dermis, you might need medication. And Bill also talks about that, about seeking doctors and psychiatrists and your ministers or rabbis at times. And Bill had a psychiatrist. Yep. Yeah. So Bill, you know, Bill did not have it easy. Bill had times he was going to become a Catholic, and at the last minute he decided to stay, or, I guess, a Protestant, and even there he wasn't that sure where he was on this, and he called God universal mind, and this and that. And um, Bill had some of the same difficulties that we've had. And we don't know what it would have been like. You know, Bill felt he, he wanted to do LSD in recovery to get new insights. He did it. Bill had his own journey. My sponsor, who was alive, and was with Bill, here's, here's Bill, and here's my sponsor, that my sponsor would tell me stories of how Bill said the answer was in a niacin. And everyone would take niacin. And this was before they had the no-flush niacin. And people would go around with pins and needles all the time. You know. So... Whatever it is, uh, everything Bill says is true, in my opinion. It applies to me with dependency issues and being a showman. And he had a big ego he would talk about. He had to be the best. 
But that's assuming your chemicals are in balance. Yachi, does that answer it some, or did I shoot the breeze, beat around the bush? Thank you. Um, that answers somewhat. Thank you. Well, that's the South African and British almost way of being polite. So tell me if I have <laughs> a question. Or not. <laughs> you, can, you can tell the story that that you, that you make funny in in London. That I make the question. Laugh, <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> tell a story, but we. I think I'll hold off telling that story. <laughs> Israel probably can tell you that one. There's, there's another question. One of these people that they used to have in ancient times where a guy would remember everything a sage would say <laughs> before he wrote down the oral law. And he'd remember it. It would be handed down. It, I think Israel's knows every story I've ever told. But today, something happened. I'm going to squirrel on Israel. Something happened, and I'm opening the story up, and he, he's finishing it about this, this other sponsor I rarely talk about. And I said, no, that's not the story. This is a... And I told him a new story for a change. So, <laughs> and that story was very important. Where this sponsor of mine, I called her and I said, um, I got to learn to trust God more. And she said, no, Harvey, you've got to learn to trust your program more. Real deep. Okay. One more question and then I'll be at ready to go. No, so that's going by I could go on for hours, but I need to limit it. Okay. Well, we have we have a question that came in private, and there's one hand up. So if we can squeeze two, we'll try and squeeze two. Okay. Uh, we, I mean, the question that came in private was: Is there still room to feel sad at times for what my sickness got me to do? Gee, great, thank you. <laughs> I'm hooked on South Korean soap operas. They're kind of cleansed, so they don't have stuff I have to worry about. But I find myself laughing and crying. Some things are so poignant. Uh, some things now, tears of joy come to my eyes. A lot of times I'll start tearing during a talk. Jess would have the same situation. You get tears of joy. Uh, but I have to watch out that my sadness isn't part of shame. And there are things. Uh, I'm not sad my dad's dead for the past 40 years almost. I just didn't have love for him. And the program wasn't made to make me love him. It just is. But I have, I cried periodically at the loss of my first sponsor. 
and of sadness. Um, my sponsor was a big hulk of a man and he started bragging how he was losing weight and he kept losing weight. And I said, Sherry, something's wrong and go to your doctor. And he said, no, 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 it's okay. And after weeks and weeks, I realized my sponsor was frightened to go to the doctor. And so one day I called him and I said, Sherry, can I take you to my friend who's this internist? And he surprised me, he said, yes. And they diagnosed stomach cancer on the table as they examined him. But he was going to be a speaker at the International AA out in Seattle or somewhere. And he wouldn't be operated on until he gave his talk. He gave his talk and I'd be by his bedside. He's dying, just crying. One day he looked at me. He said, cut it out. You're just feeling sorry for yourself. You got me confused with your father. Well, I got him confused with the father I never had. He became a father image for me. But I cry about him 30 years later. But I'm getting feelings again, if I ever had them. This is called a new freedom and a new happiness. You're going to experience things that you've never experienced. It doesn't say you will have a freedom and happiness. It says a new freedom and a new happiness. There's nothing to compare it to. Every important, frightening, sad thing, I'd be in the bathroom masturbating. Or fantasizing. And I was so young when it all started to happen. So my whole development has been retarded. I probably came into recovery at age 43 in AA at about a 10-year-old emotional level. On the outside, I looked fine. Had four kids, a wife, had big professional practice, but inside I had the emotions of the child. Last question. Go ahead, Sheila. Hi, Avi. First of all, thank you for all the sessions, the 10 sessions that I don't, I don't remember how many sessions there is, seven or 10? I think first of all, eleven or twelve, something like that. Eleven or twelve, right, right. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't keep track on all of them. Most, most of them, I, I, I was this listening. Will be eight, and there will be twelve together. Oh, be twelve in total. Okay. Um, my question is like this: I'm in the program fifteen years, and fin finally, finally, I'm sober. Thanks God from from taking in any loss in my system. Even though if I if I do take in. I make right away a phone call and I do share it by meetings with, and I sit, I'm sitting down with my sponsor and I go it over uh, with him. So I'm holding by 82 days. 
Um, the, I, I, I've been to thousands of meetings, uh, probably 20 or 30 conventions. I've been to, um, you name it, every, uh, few therapists, doctors, all of them have spent over a million dollars on just in the past 50 years, probably 1.3 or 1.4. Now, I do believe in the 12-step very much because I do, I do see miracles. I see miracles in myself as well. If I work it, it works. The, only, the question is like this. I, when I go to therapists every time, every week, I'm like, I'm getting, when I'm going out, even by the therapist, I have a lot of, I do a lot. I'm like, basically, the sadness part comes up and I could sit there and cry for 50 minutes from the, from, so basically it's, it's waking me up, my, my, my childhood trauma very strongly. And I do take Clonopil for at night to, just to calm me down, just so I should be able to sleep a couple hours. And, I, and, and then I run to meetings every morning and I'm sitting with my sponsor every day and, and I'm doing now step four as well. So between doing step four, that's a really surgery on my brain and, and, uh, and, 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 and all of the, my emotions and between therapy and everything. So it's very, it's very intense. Yeah, so I want to ask yeah. me exactly the question you want to ask. What is the question? Question is how? What should I do with the pain? How do I deal with this pain? Okay, good question. It's all imaginary. It's no longer real. It's from going back that our brain relives it, but it's just a perception. It's something that's projected on a movie screen. But it's not you. It's not you. Mm. What is the antidote? Joy. Joy. Now, how do you get it? And I notice in, um, and it's fine. Everyone does it exactly like you do it. But you started out by saying, thank God. God's not going to keep you sober. God gave you <laughs> free choice. Right. If you grab your privates, you're going to end up masturbating. Okay? That's not God keeping your hand from your privates. Okay? It doesn't work that way. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Mm. Not what we can do for ourselves. So how do we go about having therapy, working through pain, dealing with pain, but in a 12-step program, which is a separate entity from therapy, you have a process of forgiving them and you for the pain. And then through mm -hmm. the step work, the pain tends to disappear. Now in therapy, it doesn't hurt to work on this stuff, but there are two separate entities here. Therapy is a professional approach that has merit, but we have a spiritual program. It's 
totally spiritual. There is no spiritual part. So until we're willing to let go of our resentments, which is really what's causing the pain. Right. And I'm going to do something because I need, I'd like, Malcolm, would you share a little about pain stuff in the way you and I talk on 11th step? Emotional pain, right? Yeah, and of meditation and other things, yeah. Well, I think what you were talking about earlier about not identifying like it's it's the diabetes, it's the disease. Well, thoughts are the same thing. They're not our thoughts. They're just thoughts. Uh, they're just memories. Um, we, we're the ones that give them all the meaning they have. We can choose to uh, regurgitate them or we can release them as they come up. We can actually welcome them and allow them to come up. And that's where I get my biggest relief is just allowing it and turning it over. You know, we're not in control of that. You know, it's just turn that over um, as they come up. But for me, I can't be stimulating myself i have to stop and uh, watch my thoughts and feelings or watch the thoughts and feelings be still do that meditation part and that is what where the healing comes it comes of its own it, it actually it it it'll work itself out just given the space just to be quiet and still and let it process. That's the way I see it. Thank you, Malcolm. Yes. I, I want to give a picture. You know, Malcolm has introduced me to a lot of books and things that have helped me over the years. And one picture that Sandy Beach from AA gives is that he says there's a movie screen. Okay? a big screen and there's a movie projector that sends the image to the screen. Okay. Then there's the lamp in the projector that lights up the film that gets projected on the screen. Now what's the first thing that happens when you turn on that movie projector? something amazing. There's a real screen there. But once you put the projector on, the film, the digits, the screen disappears. You only see the movie. The movie looks real. And you no longer see what really is real, which was the screen it's projecting onto. So the film is a made up of past memories. It goes on the screen. It makes truth 
gone. Everything disappeared. It's being projected on the only real thing that then disappears. <coughs> it's, but who am I? I'm the light bulb. I'm the lamp. And what is that lamp? That's me. That's my breath. That's the God within me. Some people call it spirit. Some people call it the shimmer. Some people call it soul. But all this stuff is what we have magnified that no longer exists. So my mother stabbed me with this big hollow knife, this big bread knife. I had to go to the emergency room and stitches. My God, that happened 70 years ago or less. It's not real. It's only a memory that I keep bringing back. And why is it so important? Because we do that with lust. <coughs> You watch pornos like it's real. It's only digits. It's only pixels. It's not real. And then you put it in your head <coughs> and you think it's real. When none of it's real. And then you end up, the endorphins begin and you start acting out again. So living your life in past pain is no different than living your life in past lust. What happens? We go more into reality. Emotional sobriety. <laughs> Getting back to South Africa. Emotional sobriety. And what's the closest thing we get to reality? <clears throat> breath and when you get into meditation when your brain gets stops getting totally programmed from religion where they only emphasize prayer usually although many religions do emphasize meditation but many religions tend to push it to the side and you get back to breath. The word spiritual comes from the word spiritus, the Latin word, which is the word for breath. Breath. That's real. Okay. Malcolm, I hope I explained it okay. <laughs> If you want to tweak it, go ahead. No, that's good. Okay. And you have people on this call and people throughout the world to rely on to help you get to that aspect of your 11th step too. It took me decades in recovery because my sponsors weren't meditating. 
So it's nothing I learned to do. And it's over the past seven, eight years, my life has radically changed. Okay. Love y'all. You're very patient. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.